You are listening to Writing Home, American Voices from the Caribbean, with Kayama Glover and Tammy Navarro. Yet, Black women continue to survive, to thrive, to arrive into adulthood with the ability to laugh and love and wear hoop earrings and tight skirts to found social movements to liberate other motherfuckers from bondage. If this sounds like I am speaking your story, this motherfucking poem be for you, my love. If you have ever had to argue that you are no less deserving than your white counterpart, I am talking to you, my love. If you have ever been inspired by the magic of black women with thighs and asses that move mountains in their stride. If you have ever been told you speak too fiercely from the thick lip of your own truth. If you have ever been called girl like it was a fucking insult. If you have ever been called bitch, you step forward now. If you are itching to light a fucking bonfire in the house of the white patriarchy, come stand with black women now. If you want to be free like Harriet Tubman, weapon in hand, wading through unfriendly waters, her power compelling even the freedom of those who did not want to be motherfucking free. If you desire to be confrontational like Sojourner, if you wish to be audacious like Audrey, antagonistic like Angela, gangster like Winnie Mandela, angry like Asata Shakur, you come roar with us at these rallies, sit beside us in school, sing with us in church, stand with us where it matters, vote with us and vote for us at these motherfucking polls, travel with us in the virtual, in the flesh, over these waters they have used against us as weapons, across the lands of this rock we all call home, let us use this fire to crack open this fucking ground wide open with an uprising that will Never again die down. Make we give them some fire. No more water, we say. Fire next time. No more water, we say. Fire next time. No more water, we say. Fire next time. The words you just heard were fire breathed into the room at one of our recent Critical Caribbean Feminisms events by none other than Stacey Ann Chin, who we're deeply delighted to have in the studio with us today. Stacey Ann is the author of The Other Side of Paradise and recently Crossfire, A Litany for Survival. And she's a co-writer and original performer in the Tony Award-winning Russell Simmons Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway, as well as the author of four, we've established, right? Four one-woman shows, Hands of Fire, Unspeakable Things, Border Clash, and Motherstruck. Her career is a whirlwind of genre-crossing self-expression, and we are thrilled and more than a little bit daunted to try and contain her here in this space for a few minutes. So welcome, Stacey Ann. Thank you. I'm thinking we should, um, I should scrap the bio that's currently going out. Uh-oh. And just use that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> that made me sound sexy and like fierce and right, you know right. border crossing. And uh, I'll, I'll give this to you afterwards. It's Almost. nice. It's nice. Cool. I think I'm going to sleep with it tonight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for making time to be here with us today, Stacian. My pleasure. So we are going to jump in and and have some talk. I want to talk about Crossfire, obviously. A lot of what's in there has been in the world for some years now, but Mm -hmm. this is the first time it's kind of been bound and contained as opposed to spoken and brought into the room. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to to know what it took for you to decide to do that, how it feels Mm. to have these words that you usually accompany into space now 
kind of contained in a space with no take backs. And away from me. And away from you. Yeah, so like, people can just yeah. be reading them and like messing up words. And however they and want, however they're hearing the voice I in know, their head. Excerpting so, yeah. them. Um, and I want to know if you're glad you did it and if you'll do it again. I definitely will do it again. I mean, I've, you know, I, initially I thought that there was going to be about... 80% old poems, and then I would be writing about 20% new ones. It's turned out to be about 50-50. Hmm. So it's about 50% new work, mm -hmm. um, work that's not kind of like out there in the world, not read out loud anywhere. It's a, a remarkable amalgamation of a life of poetry, I think. I read some of the poems, um, and I... I I think about that 25-year-old and I think, oh, my God, she's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So fierce and so cute. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I think I see some of the truths have held true for, you know, going on three decades now. And some of the poems I wrote, you know, I think I, think I have a poem in there called Letter to the Media, <laughs> where it talks about uh, the media's responsibility and their absconding from that responsibility of telling the truth and presenting um, ideas in a way that is, is uplifting for the public and um, allowing them to see what is actually happening in the world but they are more concerned with the business of selling advertisement and presenting the story so that it keeps you glued to your seat. Mm -hmm. So um, the news is no longer the news, but it's the show that if you sit right there, we're going to tell you exactly what Trump said. Mm -hmm. But that's an old poem or that's a new one? That's an old poem. An old I think okay. that was written, that poem was written when, when we were kind of like doing the weird stuff in Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, um, I think Bush was the president then. And we were talking about how they were presenting Iraqi lives, how they were okay. presenting these bullets ripping through the hearts of like mothers and children mm -hmm. and how we were seeing all of these pictures of these dying brown people that were, you know, it kept us glued to our seat and mm -hmm. kept the ads rolling mm -hmm. on the news networks. But that theater of that media in an earlier moment, you also work through media in Crossfire because you have, I mean, social media in particular, you have a... Mm -hmm. poem entitled Tweet This, right? Where yes. you're speaking yes. direct. Well, that's not the full yeah, title exactly. of the poem. Tweet This Motherfucker. Yeah, I, I <laughs> left that out. Uh, <laughs> but you also, you work through media, the sort of newer emerging media that's happened in the last couple decades to speak mm -hmm. direct, to engage directly with. Yes, I mean, you know, and I, you know, uh, I, I've, I don't know if that's to my detriment, but I certainly have very little accountability relationship with institutions. I have a, a remarkably direct relationship with my public, largely. Uh, I'm, they see me on stage or they see me online mm -hmm. and they see what I wrote. And, you know, it remains a thing that is both freeing and limiting in that these institutions like the one under whose umbrella we are taping the show. Correct. Mm -hmm. They are a largely white institution, a largely old institution that is rooted in a lot of the ideologies that we are trying to upend, we are trying to turn over, we are trying to reimagine for people of color, for immigrants, for women, for LGBT people, for trans people, for children, for girls, for survivors. These institutions were not created to serve us and they were not created to engender our survival. Mm. 
largely they were created to uphold a feudal system at which there was the rich white man at the very top. And I mean, it's evolved to include, you know, middle class white men and rich white women. Progress, um, progress. Yeah, you know, <laughs> there, there has been some amount of progress. But those of us who are most vulnerable are still very much closer to the fire at the bottom than we are to the comfortable temperature near the top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, all that to say that I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I just know that for as long as I can speak, for as long as I can talk to an audience, mm-hmm. that I will be present in the conversation. And the way that I can be present right now is being on social media mm-hmm. and being inside of rooms like the one we created right. a couple of nights ago, mm-hmm. which was amazing and yeah. wonderful. And it made me remember that there are black people living in Brooklyn and that there are black people living in Manhattan and that there are black people living in the Bronx, that black people still are willing very, to come together. very much living mm-hmm. in, you know, you know because I, I live in Crown Heights at mm-hmm. the epicenter of gentrification just now. And um, I'm beginning to, feel, no, I'm not beginning. I, I feel like an outsider in my neighborhood now because when I approach the building that I have been living in for 22 years, the new white residents look at me with suspicion and a raised eyebrow, kind of a tilted head saying, uh, mm, yes. Still here? <laughs> N- not not even still here, because still here acknowledges that I'm there and that I have a legitimacy there. Mm. It's really like, uh, can I help you? Are you lost? Are you, can I, you know, are you, are you here for someone? Uh, you know, the, the kind of querying pause okay. and silence that has me say, I live here, motherfucker, and I've lived here long before you did. And I lived here when the woman who you displaced right next door to me used to be here for 40 years with her five children and her two grandchildren. Like, you know, that's the apartment you live in. So I, I belong here. But anyways, I don't know if I'm going off topic. I'm email you are, but that's cool. I still really do want to know mm-hmm. about about Crossfire, though, in terms of how now that you how, are a published poet, right? Yeah. Now, a published it feels, poet, it, what feels different, if anything? And mm-hmm. if, this is, if this is a track that's still moving in that direction for you, new phase, in a sense. This work, this Crossfire, has put the poems in the hands of an entirely new generation because my peers and my early fans are now professors. Mm-hmm. They are working for these institutions and are making decisions about what is taught in those classes. Mm -hmm. And they now, these poems end up in classes where, you know, I'm not the same young person speaking those poems, but those poems are now, you know, in the hands, the minds, the politics of young readers, young activists. And that is astoundingly beautiful. You know, people who have never heard me read a poem out loud they're now studying my work. And um, I've got some feedback from some of my friends who are professors. And it's been largely positive. I mean, of course, there have been arguments about my ideologies, but that's what we intend to do with the work. That's what the work is supposed to do. It's supposed to engender conversation and crosstalk and perhaps an evolution of something new. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it was a very difficult process to put the poems together. Because I wanted to edit them. The 47-year-old me wanted to edit the poems. And I couldn't allow mm-hmm. that poet to edit the 25-year-old's poems. Mm-hmm. So I had to find wow. a way to see this 25-year-old 
I had to find her. a way to yeah. respect her and mm-hmm. to, to, to hold what she experienced as true, even as it was no longer presently true for myself. Because sure. now I'm a mom with a kid. She's eight years old. Mm-hmm. I'm not as concerned about the... Um, the ruminations of my vagina these days. No. I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm still in conversation with it, but, you know, I, I'm not, you know, it's not the thing that is across the table from me every morning. <laughs> that would be your child. <laughs> that would be my child. <laughs> the product who, thereof. Yes. Who, who is, you know, maybe in conversation about her own body mm-hmm. and her own purpose. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's a different thing, and then the concerns are different. Like when I was 25 years old, when I was 27 years old, when I was on Broadway, when I was on HBO, when I was earning buku money, Mm. I could have bought a house in Crown Heights easily. But I didn't because, you know, I don't come from a tradition. Again, this is another place where, where, um, where whiteness and, you know, being an outsider and not necessarily being schooled in the tradition of property, of property, of real estate. Like, yes. I, you know, I didn't know that I should just buy a house. And now that I know that I should buy a house, it's costing me like an arm and a leg mm-hmm. and my vagina. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say really quickly how impress- how interesting it is you saying that now, given that you don't date the poems. That's incredibly vulnerable then, right? So we don't know as readers Who's 25, who's 45, yes. who's 36. I mean, that's mm-hmm. so you're owning all of it now. Yes, yes, you know, yes. Without yes. any disclaimer. I know there's a poem called In Those Years. And it begins If only out of vanity, I have wondered what kind of woman will I be when I am well past the summer of my raging youth? And it goes, Will I still be lesbian then? It has all this, you know, it was my, my, my 25 year old attempt at paying homage to um, T.S. Eliot's love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So where it's talking about, you know, um, where he goes, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. And in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. And it's very sexy, like beginning, you know, let us go, then you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of sawdust restaurants and one-night cheap hotels. And it goes on. And my own poem, you know, I, it, I was I was doing the young black immigrant lesbian version, and I go, "Will I still be lesbian then, or will the church or family finally convince me to marry some man with a smaller dick than the woman than the one my woman uses to afford me violent and multiple orgasms?" Uh, and it goes on, and in the end, it says, "I want to be fort. I don't know what I'll be like then, but I know what I want to be now. I want to be the girl who likes to die. I want to. I want to." I want to be forty years old and weigh three hundred pounds and ride a motorcycle in the winter time. Mm. And I wonder, like, I'm like, my goodness, like I'm 47. I'm well past that point of wondering that that kid Mm. had about who she would be. And I wonder how I measure up to her. Mm -hmm. I wonder how she would, what she would think of me now. Mm -hmm. Quieter in places, latent in my power. I now look for the moment to strike. I just, you know, I don't necessarily strike out at everything. Mm-hmm. I very, very carefully assess, you know, I'm more gorilla, I think, <laughs> these days. Yeah. I love but this yeah. is the quieter version. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Damn. The other night was not particularly quiet with no. that standing ovation. That was amazing. <sighs> okay. So talking. The audience of- is always very kind. Um, not necessarily because the work is good, but because the work is honest. And resonates. Those things pair. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm Jamaican and I'm Caribbean. You can't, 
I can't be like everything. I have to find a thing that must be improved because that's how it is. You know, Zuri goes to this school with mostly white kids. Mm. And so she has all this, you know, she'll draw this circle. You know, I, I talk about this, you know, almost, the story on almost every parenting podcast we, I do. And I talk about, um, you know, all these other white parents, you know, like all the kids will be around and one kid, one white kid will show up and say, look, mommy, I drew a rabbit and it's a circle. And the mom will be like, oh, my goodness, that's such a nice rabbit. He's so cute. Blah, blah, blah. Zuri will try that shit with me and she will come and be like, OK, mommy, look, I drew a rabbit. I'm like, where are the ears? <laughs> Rabbits have ears. They have like this teeth. This is not a fucking like rabbit. <laughs> Don't be going on to the world telling anybody that I affirm this rabbit of yours. <laughs> this is not a rabbit. You are Caribbean. Find out what the rabbit is. Try and make it the likeness of a rabbit. Though you're not white. Don't walk around telling people that a circle is a rabbit. You know, only Trump and them can get away with that shit. You know, <laughs> we cannot. Alternate depictions. Oh, <laughs> Alternate. Lord. Uh, surreal. <laughs> Talking of Crossfire, the poem that appears first in that collection, you have a line and it speaks to me so deeply. Mm. So I'm going to read it. It says, and while we're on the subject of diversity, Asia is not one big race and there is no such country called the islands. Thank you no, for that line. I am not from there. We need that. <laughs> I wonder if you'd talk about that, that lack of knowledge of the U.S. or it's in the U.S., that you lack know, of knowledge of the Caribbean, like thinking of it as a sort of amorphous place of the islands. And also there's a tension because you, like so many Caribbean people in diaspora, are based in Brooklyn, in New York. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's something you get from being here, but there's also maybe something you experience as a loss, that lack of basic awareness of the complexity of the region. Mm. My, my, the, 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 ver the only time I was on Oprah Winfrey's couch, we talked about why I chose to live in Crown Heights. And I live in Crown, I, I chose Crown Heights at the time at the, I would say the financial acme of my career because, and at a time when the poorest of Caribbean people lived there, largely because it was Caribbean and because it sounded Caribbean and it smelled Caribbean and it tasted Caribbean and there were Caribbean men on the corner and Caribbean old ladies going shopping during the daytime and the children still spoke with Caribbean accents even though they had never been to the Caribbean. Mm. There was an enclave that was decisively Caribbean and you have to say Caribbean because it was all over the Caribbean. And I would be able to get Jamaican food on the corner and I was so proud. I'm in the interview so young and pointing out like, look, look, that's a breadfruit. And, you know, I was, you know, I was, you know, they took me to the, you know, the, the to walk Nostrand Avenue and to look at the foods because they wanted that in the shot. Because they wanted me being home, like, you know, because I was talking about being driven, being in exile from Jamaica mm -hmm. because I was a lesbian and I was so loud and I had to leave because it was unsafe for me to be there. And I talked about how how Brooklyn, particularly Crown Heights, was a place called home. It felt like home. It mm -hmm. gave me that home that I missed, you know, because I, I you know, I, I wasn't an immigrant who was a willing migrant. Mm -hmm. I didn't come here because I wanted to. I came, toward family. I, I, right. I didn't arrive to. in the arms of family, certainly. Right. And I didn't, I didn't come here. And, and I can't say that my, my life outside of my queerness was better. All my peers in Jamaica now live in large homes. They do very well. They are very established in their careers and their lives in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. They experience a kind of 
pride. I mean, many of them are running the country in government. Um, they occupy spaces of power in Jamaica. And I would have come up with them and been one of those voices, whether as a university professor on campus, right. writing for the newspaper, being on TV, you know, being, uh, you know, you know, consulted for all kinds of ideas. You know, my mind would have been a very mm. alive and visible thing in Jamaica because I was on my way there as a student. And as evidenced by all my peers, I mean, they're very successful. I mean, they're CEOs or, you know, vice presidents of like the largest companies there, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. the company that makes beer or the company that, I don't know, lends money to people or whatever. But they're, and, and, and. You're talking about your peers from UAE, right? My peers, peers from, from UAE. Paradise. No, my peers right. from okay. UAE. Uh, definitely. I mean, right. like having jumped out of the social, um, having jumped off a, a couple la uh, rungs on the social ladder when I went to school and being light skinned and learning how to speak the Queen's English mm -hmm. and all of that, that kind of pulled me out of the abject poverty into which I was born. Right. So I had made the leap. Okay. So as a young 20-year-old in Jamaica, I was well on my way to becoming a member of society that had some space, some power, and definitely peer respect and, 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 and room to kind of be all of who I wanted to be. But my queerness accepted. compromised that. <laughs> yeah. And so when I came here, you know, I, when, I got, when I was attacked on campus by about a dozen boys who sexually assaulted me, and I came here, a part of the trajectory of life here was that I was talking about that, and that's how I ended up on Oprah's show, the Oprah Winfrey show. That's, but my 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 social climb was arrested because I was immigrant and I was black, <sighs> and I was an oddity, and I wasn't immediately able to wear the clothes that were valuable to people with power in this country. So I shopped at Conway. Mm -hmm. When I just came here, where I bought my shirts for $2 and $3 and $4. And uh, I didn't quite know how to dress in the sleek way that is valuable for the valuable people in New York. Um, and that's kind of how I discovered my style. Like, you know, I just kind of wore, you know, I couldn't necessarily afford the things that you were supposed to wear in 1997. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided I was just going to wear whatever the hell I wanted to. And three years later, people started to say, oh, my goodness, that's her style. Oh, my God, she's rocking it. It's great. It's, you know, and, you know, that's kind of how my fashion choices evolved. And I realized that I could put on anything I want. And if as long as you're walking upright and looking like you ought to be able to wear this without anybody saying anything, nobody says anything yeah. in New York City. Just this conversation makes me think about the importance of asking you your relationship, your professional relationship now to Jamaica. You talk about some of your peers, your former peers coming up out of university, but now your book, you know, your first mm. collection of poetry is out. What is your relation, your professional relationship in Jamaica um, and here? I mean, here you're incredibly well known and I just wonder how that is for you. I would say that for here, I, I feel valuable and we can talk about how we can talk about how that value is now mitigated by like age and, you know, race and sex as you age and those kinds of things. Um, and in some ways, buoyed by the fact that I'm a mother, because there's a way that people value motherhood. Um, there's a kind of legitimacy to your womanhood that is affirmed when you have a child, when you, oh, my God, you carry the pregnancy to fruition. So there's that. But in Jamaica, it's... um. 
On stage the other night, I think I was listening to Alexis's biography, her bio. Someone was reading her bio. That yeah, was me. That was yes. Tammy. <laughs> Tammy was reading her bio. Someone. And um, I remember it clearly because I was filled with such envy because someone called her the pearl. Is it the pearl? Yes. Wasn't it the pearl? The of, pride of Anguilla. The pride of Anguilla. Mm. And I was so jealous. I coveted so deeply because I would never be called the pride of Jamaica. And for all my successes in the rest of the world, I would say Jamaica has never opened its arms and said, we love you and we value you. And it remains a, a sore spot for me indeed. It remains a place that um, certainly silences me and reminds me of being small and unimportant. And no matter how bright I was as a kid and no matter how articulate and no matter how well I did in school, that no one would be there to collect my report or stand. You know, I, I went to my high school graduation and I never went to any other graduation after that because I didn't quite like the feeling of everyone else having family there and I'm there by myself. So I never went. I graduated college, finished university, and I just never went back to any any graduation. I just finished and they sent me my degrees and I never went back because, you know, it's the only pictures I have from like my high school graduation are pictures that other people took and I was in it. And over the years I've coupled the photographs of other people's families together and there are a few now of me. So I'm used to being alone and used to being, so it's this juxtaposition of America's acceptance of who I am. And even, I mean, without America, I wouldn't have known. Like in Jamaica, I was like a skinny girl, so I wasn't attractive. <laughs> you needed some curves to be attractive in Jamaica I grew up in. Um, you know, I remember this song they have like, Kukumkum, you know, oh. there's like, all oh, my girl, red drag, I have, a I have a nickname for them, Kukumkum. It's the sound of bones, right? <laughs> Knocking. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm familiar, you know, I just never thought I was good looking. And then I landed in America, 105 pounds with 34 deep boobs, you know, all of a sudden I was attractive. And then I was writing these poems that were of value in New York on the Lower East Side in the New York and Poets Cafe, all over the country, in Denmark, in South Africa, in Sweden, in in, in, in. So I've, I've experienced certainly the parallel and the more, you know, I mean, I was on Oprah's show and um, everybody in America was like, oh my God, you're amazing. That's so great. Your career is doing well. Congratulations. And then Oprah's uh, people called from the show to say, do we need to move you? Because we're getting so many death threats. About you? Do we need to like figure out a way to get you out of your house? Um, how's your family in Jamaica? Are they safe? And then I actually went down. I remember, do you remember when before the white people came and Atlantic Mall wasn't so fantastic? Yes, I do. And um, it just had like some, you know, I don't know. Ch -ch 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 Jimmy Jazz? 
Models. <laughs> yes, models, Jimmy Jazz. It has, uh, it had a, you know, that, that animal, it's like the cheeseburger place or like it's a, the kids go there and it's cheese in Chuck the name. Chuck and Cheese. It had Chuck and Cheese in there, you know, and then it had like, you know, but now it's got Victoria's Secret and it's got like, you know, Uniqlo and everything. Zara. Yes, all the fanciness. Mm-hmm. And so... We just did a lot of advertising for a bunch of folks, by yeah. the way. Bleep, bleep, <laughs> bleep, 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 cut. I think it's cool if we leave it, but... Yeah. But you were down there. But I was down there and, you know, and I was kind of like high from everyone talking about the Oprah show. I mean, even my my aunt, who is like crazy Christian, and she's the one who kicked me out of the house because I was gay at 11 o'clock at night up in Poughkeepsie. And I had to find my way down to Brooklyn and figure out somewhere to stay that night. She called up her whole church to talk about, to watch me on Oprah, mm-hmm. talking about being gay in Jamaica, which is something that she was like ideologically opposed to mm-hmm. because Oprah was such a big deal. So I was feeling kind of high. And then I went downtown and then this guy, he just like said, excuse me, are you that girl from Oprah? And I said, yeah. And he just shoved me poof, in the chest and I fell on the ground. And he said, if this was Jamaica, I would kill you right here and nobody would care. And then, so I've always had to deal with those two things happening at the same time. I've also performed in Jamaica where they had to kind of like smuggle me out of the building because people were coming to get me Mm. because of what I said. But also like there's um, a festival called Calabash Literary Festival. Of course, of course. And they've had me back so many times. And I am going back this year um, with Crossfire. So the very first time I performed in Jamaica, Calabash had me. So I went down and I was so scared and I thought everybody's going to kill me because this was before Oprah. This is before everything. And I knew that I was going to die. I was going to die right there. But my own principled idea of how I should be said that you cannot be on HBO. You cannot be in America talking about this stuff. And you do not take the opportunity to go home and make Mm -hmm. a statement in a place where they're offering you the space to do it. So I was trembling and I did it and I got a standing ovation. So I've, my relationship with Jamaica professionally remains a thing that is, you know, untenable and changeable. And I'm never quite sure what it will happen, you know, with Jamaica. But then, you know, in Jamaica, in America, I'm always black. <laughs> I'm always an immigrant. Damned if you do. You've From the island. child, though. Yeah. What do you, what, what does, how does all this fit in your mothering of Zuri and her relationship to your home? Um, she, she loves Jamaica. She's had nothing but great experiences. I mean, her thing is like, I love Jamaica, except for the mosquitoes. Uh, but, you know, she, she, okay. she, she loves Jamaica. And all my friends with children who are around her age, she has like relationships with them and she's friends with them. She knows she's Jamaica and she claims it. So she's mitigated that relation. I mean, she's for sure, a for certain, of you for certain. In Jamaica. In and then sense. for many years, when, when, just when Zuri was born, I started dating a person who lived in Jamaica. And for two years, I went all the time. Like I went as every opportunity I went. And so that kind of rekindled my relationship with Jamaica in this very decisive way with my child at a time when she was so tiny that everyone wanted to help and to hold her and to celebrate her. And no one cared that, you know, I'd mixed her up in a test tube and like poured her up my vagina. You know, like, you know, they were all very like happy with the kid because... 
Jamaicans are like that. You know, mm-hmm. culturally, Caribbean people are like that. Give me the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody want to do something with the baby. Let me change the baby. Let me hold the baby. <laughs> Give me the... No, man. No, no. I'm like, can I please have my child back? No, no, no. I'm not finished with her yet. I soon come back and they're going around the corner with the baby. <laughs> I mean, that's... That, that, that was wonderful to have for the first two years of her life, you know, consistently. And, you know, I rekindled friendships that I hadn't really been close with those people for a long time. It was, it was good. Mm-hmm. It was good. And it remains a really good time in our, our life, okay. you know, because Jamaica is just really good for having children. <laughs> she you know? also made you a mom in that space, right? Yes. Like she identified you in a way. Yes, yes, yes. She d- digestible. Right? Definitely changed. Like I was no longer the lesbian who, I mean, the, 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 the conversation was that I was actually performing Cunnilingus on stage. That was the rumor <laughs> that was floating around in Jamaica to the people who were not at the show. Like, people were, yeah, yeah, she was, she doing all kind of thing. Yeah, I think they're even doing that on stage. Oh. I mean, like, <laughs> You know, when the truth is not readily available to people, they make it up. But then the narrative changes when... When there's a child and that is so cute and then she was so articulate and then she, you know, she kind of like rolled into the world articulate and smart and kind and compassionate. You know, she had the worst pregnancy in the world. I mean, it was terrible from, from, the, from three days after insemination or the, for putting it back from three days when they put it back the eggs in yeah. implantation from three days from after that until they cut me open and pulled her out of me I was in physical duress I went to the hospital 26 times mm. I was bleeding the entire pregnancy I was throwing up the entire pregnancy I was spitting and on bed rest the entire pregnancy I had to have strangers care for me mm. it, it was it was agonizing you know I mean you know, and yet another reason to support women's uh, right to opt out, deciding what happens or doesn't happen with their bodies. Like, can you imagine if I didn't want to be pregnant? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> if I didn't want the child, Lord have mercy, Lord help us, Jesus. And when I say Lord help us, I mean Audrey Lord. <laughs> Stacey-Ann, you're so open about your family dynamics. Mm -hmm. Your poetry that you perform often involves family members. You write about your family history in your memoir. And then you have your living room protest Mm -hmm. videos that you've been doing with your daughter. And I just wonder if I could hear you talk a little bit about that, that decision. Maybe it's not a decision for you to be so open with the world about your family dynamics. You know, um, in The Other Side of Paradise, I write about... When I was a kid, my life at home was so horrible and I had no one in my corner and I was so ashamed of the reality of my life that I started lying about it. So as far back as I can remember being conscious as a small child, I was making up stories. I was telling people my mother was going to come and get me. I was telling people my mother was sending me clothes from America. Um, although she was in Canada, I was telling people America. Potato, potato. I, you know, after the summer, sometimes I would come back to school and be like, oh, yeah, I was in America. And I would fake an American accent going like, oh, yes, I was in America. So that's why I'm speaking with an American accent. Because, you know, when you're over there, you just have to speak in this American accent. So there are many ways. And I used to... I remember as a teenager when my friend would give me when, when my friend's dad would give me a ride home, 
I would have, you know, I, I don't know if this happens in other places, but in certainly in Jamaica, the the poverty is right next door to, you know, the 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 affluent, and so my friend, I would make them drop me at the rich person's gate and say, oh yeah, this is my house. And then I would wait until they drive away and then I would walk to the wrong side of the tracks mm-hmm. to, to, to walk down the path and up the you know, rocky hill mm-hmm. path to get home. So I, 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 I really lived that reality. And even I remember I used to go down to the telephone booth with my friend and I would call my mother collect. And then my mother would pick up the phone. Remember those days when you could hear mm-hmm. the other person refusing your call? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she would get on the phone and she would say, no palpa anglais, I don't speak English to the operator. And I would hear her say, she doesn't speak English. Or she would say, no, I can't, um, I can't speak on the phone now. I'm not accepting the call. And then I would have, I would, I remember stealing myself and the operator would say, I'm sorry, but they're not accepting the call. And I, the operator would hang up, but I would continue holding the phone for another 10 minutes because my friend is with me and I don't want to admit that my mother didn't accept the phone call from me. So, you know, I, I had all that going on. I, I, I spent years constructing this reality, this alternate reality of my life. Mm. And by the time I got to 15, it was just so, such a burden. Like, you know, lies take a lot of work, you know. Mm. I mean, I don't know if people, you know, if people are out in the world are truth tellers and therefore they're not aware of how much work lying takes, but it takes an enormous amount of work to keep track of who you've told mm. when. And, and the then, emotional toll. The emotional toll. Like, right? you know, and then you have to always kind of try to separate the truth from the 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 lies so that you are not being like going crazy in your head about what mm. is true and what is not. And so... I, I get a I get a scholarship to the Shortwood Teachers College and I move from Montego Bay to Kingston and I'm sitting in my room and my roommate says, so where are you from? And my roommate's name was Cynthia and she's from like another country section of Jamaica, maybe from, I don't know, some somewhere in Manchester or something. And she says to me, just making conversation, she goes, so where are you from? What part? So, so which parish are you from or something? And I remember holding for a very long time inside of myself. Because here I was in a new place and no one knew me. And I could continue to make the lies that I had been doing. Or I could chuck the whole thing mm. and speak truth. And I had no idea what the truth would bring me. But I knew I didn't want the weight of the lies anymore. And so I said to her, I was born in Montego Bay. And then my mother ran away and left me. And then my father didn't claim me. And none of them have anything to do with me now. And I'm here on a scholarship and I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know how I'm going to make it through the f- four years here because I don't have the money. And then I became this person who would rather tell you than wait for you to find out. Wow. 
There's a word I want to talk about with you, resilience. It's a word that is used to describe black women very, very often. Mm -hmm. And I know it's meant as a compliment. I understand that. But obviously, if you really think about it, it, it just truly means someone who's both, yeah, someone who's both superhuman but also subhuman, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who just won't have the decency to die or mm -hmm. drown in their own tears mm -hmm. or what have you, right? That's really what resilience is. You don't stay down. Mm -hmm. And so... So that word, but also bringing this back to the fact that you're a mother, you know, what are you going to, what do you think or what have you told your daughter about the resilience that will be expected for her in this world and how much she should be willing to bear? Funny you should say that this morning she came home yesterday telling me, oh, I learned about Frederick Douglass. I watched a movie about him. Do you know that he was enslaved and then he... Um, ran away from uh, slavery and, uh, you know, followed the North Star to uh, New York. And then he, he, he started a newspaper that he called the North Star because that's what he followed when he came to New York. And um, just kind of like just going on about like details of him and stuff. And we have these finger puppets on the fridge that are like, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass, you know, Harriet Tubman, Frida Kahlo, like all of these people. And so she's like, she, and she goes, I have to take this to school tomorrow. Is it okay if I take it to school? I'll be very careful with it. And I'll just put it on my inside pocket when I'm finished sharing. And it comes with a little card that you can get to read. And then we, you know, in the car this morning, she's like, Frederick Douglass, he's got white hair. And I was like, yeah. And you know, we talked about what he might have been like when he was younger and blah, blah, blah. And then there was silence. And then she goes, does it ever make you feel good when you talk about slavery? And I said, I don't think it makes me feel good when I talk about slavery, but tell me more about what you mean when you ask that. And she says, it just makes me feel sad and it makes me just worry about everything and it makes me feel scared that they're going to come and take me away and make me a slave or take you a slave and then they'll sell me. And then she starts crying in the car. And, uh, you know, she's a crier, <laughs> mm. this child of mine. I am not a crier, mm. generally. Mm. I am what you call resilient. Yes, indeed. I am, you know, her name means vulnerable. Siali, it's the Mutuan is spoken by the Fiji people and it means the frangipani flower, which they say is at once strong and vulnerable. And I wanted to give her a name that meant she could bend but would not break. Because I think I have been broken so many places because it is so hard for me to bend. And so I wanted her to be able to bend because sometimes bending saves your life, you know. <laughs> So she's a crier and she always, she's always crying about some shit. <laughs> always like, you know, is crying about somebody else's sorrow, crying about, you know, her own sorrow, you know. And then I'm like, why are you crying? And she's like, I feel like crying. I, I should be able to cry if I want to cry. And we have these big shouting matches and she's crying. And I'm like, you have to save your things for something that's important. How do you get to decide what's important to me? And she goes on and she cries and she cries and she cries all. 
all the time. So I've been like forced to make a way for the crying to be present. But so diplomatic. <laughs> but also to urge her to a place of not allowing other people's sorrow to be swallowed up by your own tears. So then, you know, like, so, so we have this pushy conversation this morning where I was like, well, let's see, why, why are you crying about slavery when you're thinking about it now? What exactly about it? And then she says, well, she's sad about slavery, of course, as it happened before, and she knows that it's still happening in places now. And, but she's essentially afraid that it will happen to her. And we talked about why it wouldn't be likely that it would happen. And so to uh, think about it wouldn't be, you know, the best use of one's mental resources. And then we began to talk about why it is important, even when it is difficult to talk about difficult stories and to share difficult stories and to have your life be out in the world and then she, you know, I, we talked about, you know, one of our favorite movies is the last Harriet movie, mm-hmm. not because it was like the best movie ever made, but it was a black woman kicking ass mm-hmm. and freeing people. And she was not, she was not a victim. She was largely a woman wielding her power and, you know, moving through the world with such autonomy and such, you know, force that it was beautiful. And it was a black woman with black skin, with a black body, uh, black face, black nose, black mouth. We actually did a review of the movie and Cynthia Revo said she liked it. <laughs> so that was like a little geek out moment for both of us. But, and she, she, you know, she, we, we began to talk about how it is that when these stories are told, how those stories inspire other people to, 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 to act. Because, um, you know, she, she said that when she saw Harriet doing all of her amazing feats in the movie that she herself felt like as a black girl that she could be strong and she could walk fierce and she could be magical and that she could be a superhero as well. And, you know, it made us, so we have to have these conversations that talk about why it is important to be a voice in the world. I mean, and when you ask Zuri, who are you and what are you? She will say, my name is Zuri chin and I am an activist and I'm a black girl and I'm very proud of my hair and my body and she will say one of the favorite things about her is that she's an upstander and not a bystander and I think that's something that we've worked on her whole life and whether she goes on to that life or not I know that she will always be the girl for whom it won't be so easy to stand by and allow someone else to be hurt because she finds such a value in being an upstander and being an ally. And our own lives, you know, our own lives aren't terrible. You know, her life is pretty good. People are very impressed with her. They like her a lot. She's very easy to make friends. Not as like emotionally, like, you know, uh, twisted as, as those of us who were raised in different spaces are. You know, she, she can hear somebody say, I don't want to play with you and not be like, twisted about it she's a pretty happy kid pretty well liked kid but then she has to know that that is privilege and that she has to wield that on behalf of those without that privilege and that it is her duty and every time she doesn't do it barring being safe for herself and being safe in herself 
that she is absconding from a duty that is necessary and a necessary part of being a citizen of the world to make it better. And there are moments when I see her shaking and she's trembling and she is a little afraid of like doing what she knows is the right thing. But she's very convicted in herself that she must do the right thing, even though it's difficult. And as I said, I've seen her stress about it and I've wanted to tell her, no, you don't have to do it. But I want her to be able to do it and choose that for herself and not necessarily, you know, fall back on on, on wanting to be saved you know, like she can be a savior, you know, she can be the Lord that people say, Lord, help us. And she can be that person and not just asking, you know, for someone else to come and save you. You can save yourself. You can save others. And if you take that as a way of looking at the world, then my God, what an army we would create to make the world better, to change the world, to address all of the things that are wrong with the world. I love that. She can be a savior. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all this wisdom today, before, and with what you'll continue to do, I'm sure. Thank you. Well, thank you for making space for, um, for, for people like me because the institution doesn't always make space for us and for you to like have us over and feed us and give us a room full of like smart, amazing black women to listen to us and allies and to be so held, so beautifully held is in itself magic and it is credit that we use as we move on and we go in spaces that don't feel like that and sometimes we can remember that night at Barnard College that makes us able to go to Wenatchee, Washington or, (laughs) you know, Cincinnati, Ohio to deal with people who don't want to hear us but they have to look like they want to hear us so that they can look like they're doing the right thing. So thank you for having us. Thank you, Cecil. <laughs> Writing Home is produced by Kayama Glover, Tammy Navarro, Rachel James, and Miriam Neptune. Support for this podcast comes from the Digital Humanities Center, the Center for Research on Women, the Media Center, and the Library at Barnard College. Our music is by Aizan from their album Diligence, and the track is Tribulation. <laughs>